Hello and welcome back to The Bunker Daily, a little bite-sized conversation to start your day. I'm Naomi Smith. We all hear a lot about the economic, political and public health sides of the COVID-19 crisis, but comparatively little hard detail about exactly where a virus like this comes from and how linked it could be to human activity. Coronaviruses are classified as zoonotic diseases, which means that they are transmitted between people and animals. Until 2002, scientists broadly assumed that the worst effects of coronaviruses were similar to a cold. They gave you the sniffles for a few days. That changed in the early noughties when SARS hit us. It was linked to the farming of civet cats and killed one in 10 people who contracted it. In 2012, as a consequence of intensive camel farming, MERS arrived and that virus killed one in three who caught it. COVID-19 is the latest high-profile coronavirus and while its species origin is not yet known precisely, current thinking links it to a wet market in Wuhan where live animals were traded. So is it fair to say that viruses like COVID-19 and the meat trade are inextricably linked? I've only been vegan for five years or so and still have the zeal of a convert. So I'm delighted to be joined today by a veteran of the world of animal rights campaigning, Juliette Galatly of the vegan charity Viva, that she founded more than 25 years ago. Viva campaigns to end the abuse of animals exploited and killed for food. Before that, she worked with one of the world's most famous vegetarians, the late Linda McCartney, and was instrumental in getting more schools to serve up vegetarian meals. Julia is also a zoologist and a psychologist, so is very well placed to talk us through both the science of pathogens and how to change mindsets to wean the world off the consumption of animal products. Hello, Juliet. How are you? Where, where are you joining us from, from, from today? Hello. I'm very well. I'm from my home in Chepstow. Lovely. Um, and how's lockdown been for you so far? Um, it's got its highs and its lows. The, the parts of it, I must admit, I've rather enjoyed. And, you know, I've spent quite a lot of time with my teenage sons and my animals have really enjoyed us all yeah, being sure. at home. They're the real winners. <laughs> <and all this. laughs> yeah, they're the winners. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah, 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 we're coping. Thank you very much. Good. Well, predicting pandemics is rather like... Pre- predicting whether the sun will come up tomorrow. Um, It's going to happen. Uh, Pandemics will be with us. And it's usually just a matter of when, not if. Juliet, to what extent is the enormous cost of the corona emergency down to the fact that humans eat meat? Um, Many would argue that the deadliness of COVID-19 is down to government's failures to act swiftly to contain it, rather than the origin or the nature of the disease itself. Yes, I think we need to look at the origins of pandemics. Um, If you look at them taken together, 56 zoonoses, so those are the diseases that have been caused by um, microorganisms crossing from the animals to the humans. So 56 of zoonoses are responsible for an estimated two and a half billion cases of human illness and 2.7 million deaths every year. And that was before COVID-19 even came on to the scene. So, I mean, people talking about all kinds of theories about um, COVID-19 as if it's something unusual. But I think what's quite worrying is that more and more diseases are emerging from animals and crossing over to human beings. um, So that it's becoming almost, let's say, a normal phenomenon. Um, So scientists estimate that more than 
six out of 10 every known infectious diseases. So those are the ones we already know about in people um, can be spread from animals. So that's not just coronaviruses, that's other... Exactly. It's it's infectious diseases, full stop, all infectious diseases. And three in four of those new or emerging infectious diseases. So that's three in four, every new or emerging infectious disease comes from animals. So that's the, um, um, you know, people like the World Health Organization saying this is center of disease and prevention. Um, So we know that this pandemic, like you just, you know, intimated was something that was waiting to happen in fact governments probably you may be aware worldwide had started to prepare more for it being a flu virus than a coronavirus but whichever source it came from um worldwide governments have known there was going to be a pandemic and is it fair to say i mean look maybe this is making it too simple but how we treat animals has global public health implications is is the correlation as direct as that it is as direct as that so there are there are multiple reasons for um pandemics but with zoonosis these diseases that are crossing from animals to people becoming also more pathogenic um it's because of two main things one is uh, wildlife trades whether it's legal or illegal so people are trashing the homes of wild animals and throwing up these viruses, to put it very simply, and making it much easier for them to jump from the animals to the human hosts. And the other big reason is factory farming. So that's intensive farming has become so common now worldwide. So, um, you know, you can't just obviously look at countries like China, which do have mega farms. So do the United States. You look home here in the United Kingdom um, we've just made a film called Hogwood, which has been delayed by lockdown, um, which we're launching in about six weeks on all the major platforms. The reason I'm telling you that is because we went into Hogwood is a mega pig farm in the UK supplying a major retailer and looked at how difficult it is to expose and get these places shut down or get the retailers to stop selling from them. Even when you find the utmost disease and squalor, in other words, the conditions are absolutely ripe for viruses to be able to to spread and you you've sort of touched on this already but you know particularly from trump but in fairness the western world over there's been this real xenophobia towards coronavirus it was their culture that caused Mm. it or it's a chinese flu i mean that's obviously not true um how exactly do western animal farming methods score on the controlling pathogen front do these viruses only ever emerge or, or, or other infectious diseases only ever emerge from uh, you know less developed farming techniques no they emerge very much from both so for example if you look at um pandemics over the last century or so um a lot of them are related to um, species of flu viruses um I mean, even if you go back to swine flu, which I think a lot of us have forgotten about, but it was only 2009 that killed up to half a million people. That is a lot of, you know, havoc that it, Mm. it, that it wrought. Um, swine flu is a mix of three different viruses, which is one of the things that really concerns scientists because swine flu is a mix of a human virus mixed with pig and chickens. So we know that these viruses have have this capability of swapping genes and making themselves more pathogenic. Now, the problem with modern, if you like, intensive farming that, you know, was invented, if you like, by the Western world is that 
you have the conditions where, let's say, in um, a chicken broiler farm, so they're the chickens that are bred for meat, where you have got tens and tens and tens of thousands of birds, even in one shed. And so if you imagine um, the bird flu virus, that sat very happily in ducks, literally for millions of years. It was a waterborne virus. It didn't harm the ducks. It lived in their gut intestine. The ducks shed it into the water. The, the next duck would come along and, you know, dabbling away would take back up the virus. It would, you know, take up residence in its, its gut lining. And it lived happily like that, as I say, for millions of years. You know, then what happened, these ducks were you know, taken out of the water, they were sold, they were put in cages. The virus has, in inverted commas, a choice then in terms of being able to survive. So they're defecating on, say, chickens below them. They're kept in conditions which are appalling. And then one way or another, that virus gets inside an intensive bird factory farm. Now, you can imagine outdoors if that virus becomes too virulent in other words it kills its host so it kills the chicken host if you've got natural conditions where you've got very small populations that virus is end of it's end of its story because it's killed its host but when you put that virus inside a factory farm it can spread from bird to bird to bird to bird to bird. And we're not talking about thousands of mutations. We're talking about these viruses being allowed trillions upon trillions of mutations. And then all it needs, you know, is those mutations to make it um, able to then pass to human beings. And that, of course, is is what happened with the various flu pandemics. So you get so we talked about swine flu, with a mix of you had chi um, chicken farms next to pig farms um, in places like the United States of America, on an absolutely vast scale, making it absolutely so easy for these viruses to mutate and cross to human beings. Um, and uh, and just for those of us that aren't so familiar with the term what exactly is a wet market um, do they generate pathogens because animals are slaughtered for meat or because species that don't normally encounter one another are then brought into proximity at the market yeah that's that's right so wet markets there are um, well nobody really knows but there are many 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 thousands that thousands of them across China and Vietnam and beyond um, they're not you know they're in countries like India as well for goodness sake you know and there you've got animals that would never normally come into contact with one another in one place but they're in the most dreadful conditions so you've got caged animals captured illegally sometimes legally um, actually farmed um, as they were in China um, they're skinned sending a cocktail of microorganisms into the air uh, those dreadful cramped conditions and the mix of the wild and domestic creatures alongside the throngs of people, you know, they are pandemics in the making. So they're called wet markets, actually, because they're slaughtered in the market and then the water's thrown on the blood. And so they literally are wet places to be. But you can imagine the spray coming off that. I mean, going back to coronavirus, remember COVID-19 is spread through inhaling tiny respiratory droplets of the virus in the air or from picking it up on your hands from surfaces that you then touch your mouth, your nose, your eyes. Well, coronavirus is probably carried in saliva, blood, urine, mucus, feces, or other bodily fluids of an infected animal or person. So if you imagine a market with cages of different animals stacked on top of each other, with people packed in there too, and then their slaughtered skin chopped up, handled, mm -hmm. I mean, you can hardly make a more perfect breeding ground for an emerging virus. And I suppose if intensively farmed animals are living 
you know, beak to beak, snout to snout, tail to tail, but also not just their proximity, but as I understand it, in pretty poorly ventilated cages or pens with little to no sunlight. And that that itself must also be a breeding ground for viruses and bacteria to spread, whether it's faecal diseases like salmonella and E. coli or coronaviruses. So uh, talk to me about that. You know, it's not it's not just the cramped conditions. It's it's sort of there's more to it, isn't there, um, in terms of the, the big industrialized farms? Yeah, so just to give you an example, I went on to um, um, an egg chicken farm in the UK, um, coming back to home, and there were 500,000 birds on that one site. So that is a lot of animals crammed in, and they were in the so-called enrichment cages. So in those cages, you've got anything up to 80 birds in one cage. Um, And what I found really shocking was, yes, what you just touched upon it's the um the smell of the place which erodes the respiratory linings of these of these birds it's the same in pig farms actually you get this erosion of the respiratory linings so they're already very susceptible animals to disease then you've got the fact that they're all crammed in together so disease can spread from animal to animal with ease um then you've also got the fact that their immune systems are, are suppressed simply because of the overcrowded stressful and frustrating conditions you know those animals imagine their behavior how it's curtailed um uh, you know at every turn they just cannot do or fulfill what is natural to them and so you've got animals that are in a very poor state and as I was walking down this was which is one of the major again suppliers um the dead had been left in there for a considerable time to the degree where the bodies would actually had been so compressed um there was no flesh left in them at all so they hadn't bothered lifting the dead out from the living so you imagine this the same with the, the hogwood pig farm I just mentioned you had the dead left in with the living um so, so what makes it more ripe for, for disease spreading than these conditions that, that, that exist the world over? Because what we were exposing mm-hmm. is just normal, I'm afraid. It's not but yeah, I'm, it's just I'm, normal. I would imagine that a lot of people listening to this then might say, well, look, if we, if we make this argument to people in the British or European meat industry, they'll say, look, we just got far higher animal welfare standards than places like China. And, you know, they don't, we don't produce public health emergencies on the scale um, of, of all of this. Um, what, what, what would you say in terms of just, you know, the comparing the suffering of animals like for like between Far East and, and, and the USA and then Brit- Britain and Europe? I think um, animals suffer whichever way you turn. Um, unfortunately, we have human beings, I mean, we have this attitude that they are a commodity that we can do with what we will. And although, of course, we get extremely upset by the sight of, um, you know, all the different wild animals in wet markets in China, because we're not used to seeing wild animals treated in that appalling manner. And it is truly appalling. But when we take the cameras into an intensive pig farm or chicken farm in the UK, those conditions are absolutely appalling to the degree where we went on you know around the cities of the UK showing people the footage and the biggest reaction people got firstly was shock and horror and the second was this cannot be legal in the UK you know it's 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 the people thinking well surely we do things better here and the answer is no we don't this is this is precisely why we're exposing these particular farms mm. is because they're so large and supplying major retailers and those major retailers know exactly what's going on because we've told them 
so what would you say to people who argue that eating less but better meat, so less intensively farmed, higher level of animal welfare, and therefore probably more expensive, um, is an acceptable compromise between these concerns and the fact that lots of people like to eat meat and relatively cheap meat at that? I think the, the there's lots of answers to that um, in, in my view. One of the major things that we have to be concerned about is the environmental arguments because of the situation the world is now in. We're now in the sixth mass extinction. We've got about up to 200 species going extinct every day. We've been told by the United Nations um, last year that one million species are at risk. So why am I mentioning that? Well, because of the major um, drivers of wildlife extinctions is us ironically consuming meat and dairy because it takes so much more land to be able to you know feed a meat eater than it does for example a vegan and these issues we are really going to have to wake up to it so I'll just give you one fact relating to this meat and dairy uses four-fifths of the world's farmland four-fifths but it provides less than one-fifth of the calories so there have been major eminent um um health bodies and scientists saying that we now need to look at, they will not say the world should go vegan. They will not be as bold as saying that, but what they've basically said, the way that they term it is that plant-based diets can feed so much more, about 4 billion more people using the land that we have available at the moment, but also we could use that land much more efficiently. So we're looking at really, really serious issues and free range farming is more damaging than than almost anything on the planet because of the amount of land these animals take because you have to grow crops to feed those animals and then those animals are fed to human beings and it's just grossly inefficient on a scale that the planet simply cannot afford when we're looking at a population growth you know that's going to edge up to getting close to 10 billion by about 2050 it's estimated to be 9.7 billion by then um, and many universities, the environmental centres are saying that we just cannot continue as we are because we cannot expand yet more land to be used for fodder and grazing for free, free range animals or to feed factory farmed animals. We have to feed people directly. Um, and in fact, coming back to home, Oxford University, Joseph Poor did an amazing study, which is very well respected and quoted worldwide, where he looked at land use um, for vegans versus um, a meat centred diet. And he found that by the world becoming vegan, we would need 76% less land. And that is a very powerful figure that there would be 50% less global warming gases emitted by a vegan diet globally. So we desperately need people to wake up and accept that veganism is a positive and easy and inexpensive mm. solution, but positive for the world. And if and if it's using that much less land, then presumably humans won't be living so close to animals whose habitats have been destroyed and who have had to move closer to where humans live. And so, again, reducing the risk of, of um, infectious disease jumps from, from them to us. Absolutely, because there would be vast expanses of land that we could actually use to rewild, which we desperately need to do. So you don't need to encroach on the, on the land of other species, like you just said, but also less pollution, less methane, less nitrous oxide, less CO2 emissions, more carbon storage. Um, so, you know, it's an absolute necessity and that's the situation that we're in and, and we, I mean a disease that we haven't mentioned I just mentioned very quickly is Ebola if I may, may because that has you know is a disease which has got an incredibly um 
it's incredibly um, pathogenic. So you're looking at, depending on which species of virus, killing a quarter to 90% of those people that are infected. It was first identified back in the um, 70s in two simultaneous outbreaks in um, South Sudan, and the other was in in the Democratic Republic of Congo. But the reason that I wanted to mention Ebola is because, again, the virus can infect people by entering the body through your nose, mouth, eyes, open wounds, cuts, and so on and so forth. And although it's not entirely clear how Ebola initially spread from animals, we know it did come from animals to humans. Um, and it's believed that it either came from eating bats directly, so it wasn't known until then, but the, the bat trade in actually eating bats directly, about 100,000 bats were killed and sold every year in the Congo. Um, and so... You're looking at people also eating lots of other animals. So we're talking about animals like chimpanzees. So we have invaded their territory. And it could be that Ebola came from people eating bats directly or from the bats infecting the chimpanzees and then people eating the chimpanzees directly. And as I understand it, I think AIDS also came from eating bushmeat or or that's certainly the received wisdom around the AIDS epidemic. Absolutely. HIV AIDS is um, definitely another zoonotic disease and it definitely came from eating probably primates. Yes. You talked about species at risk and I suppose humans are now a species at risk given um, the the veracity of COVID-19, some might say. Um, and, And you touched on this, the mortality rates of some other infectious diseases have been incredibly high. Uh, even though their spread was lower. As I mentioned in the opening, MERS, the the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, killed one in three who caught it. Mm. Um, To what extent could COVID-19 just be a dress rehearsal for humans if we don't do more to stop these pathogens making the leap? Um, It it is a dress rehearsal. There is no doubt whatsoever. Um, Some people I've heard, you know, some scientists saying that we're lucky with this one. And what they mean by that is that the mortality rates are probably, depending on who, you know, which stats you take, because they vary country to country and how elderly the population is and so forth, uh, anything from 0.7 to, to the World Health Organization back at the start of March at 3.4%. But you look at a disease like MERS, you're looking at 34% death rates. You're looking at SARS around 10%. The one that they were really worried, as I mentioned, was a flu virus, which is H5N1, was actually one of the ones the world's been preparing for because 60%, 60% of people who are infected have died of it. Um, that has not gone away. How the world's responding is when they see that um, emerge in bird populations, for example, like back in 2005, literally tens of millions of birds were killed in an effort to contain the disease. And you've got different versions of flu viruses emerging. I mean, even while coronavirus has been going on in the UK, we've had something like 16 emergencies of a different flu virus in our bird populations of much less pathogenic variety. But the point is they're there. And they are mutating Mm. at a hell of a rate because that's what viruses do. Um, And so it is just a matter of time. So getting on to the the big P politics of all of this, um, in the UK, do we have any vegan MPs? Um, Do they advocate on these kinds of issues for us in Parliament? We do have some vegan MPs. As far as I'm aware, there aren't, there aren't very many. Um, I mean, in Bristol, we have an extraordinary um, high percentage because three out of four of our MPs for Bristol are, um, are vegan. But um, I think um, 
when we launched um, a campaign called Vegan Now last year, I, it, it becomes very obvious when you start dealing on a political level how slow change seems to be and how although you know people talk about the urgency for example of global warming when you look at actual um real change that politicians are making and encouraging the public to make it seems incredibly minimal given the the potential disaster of the situation that we're in so it is very frustratingly slow at the moment is the honest answer to that i mean viva's concentrated very much on people trying to get people to change themselves yes you see i was going to get onto this because like me you're a campaigner um and legislation really can only take you so far you know governments can make wet markets illegal they can ban certain types of factory certain types of factory farming but black markets do and and will spring up so it really is about public attitude that needs to change mm. so that demand actually falls so what's your advice how do you think we can win hearts and minds towards eating fewer uh, or or no animal products at all well Just in in going back to what you just said, you know that it's thought with COVID-19 that disease spread from bats to pangolins and then to people. Um, And an example of change in China is one of their mega stars, Angela Baby, she's called, has done a public campaign across China, very determined young woman, to try and wake people up to to the plight of these animals in the wet markets. And their belief is that young people in China are the answer to cultural shifts in attitudes. And there is some evidence from surveys being taken in different uh, in different cities that that shift is is happening, and obviously the same in the UK in terms of attitudes to factory farming. So, for example, we do campaignings just to um, university students as part of our, our, our um, work, and we find that through the thousands of students that we've spoken to, the vast majority are already with us in heart. They don't know the detail. But but they're already shifting. You know, the ground is definitely changing in the UK, um, and they you know they're the generation who are going to make this shift really happen. But they're very concerned that it needs to happen with the older generations too, for change to happen in time. Putting it quite bluntly, before you know real ca- catastrophes start to to hit us one way or another. And and uh, is, is it is it the environmental argument that they feel most acutely, or is it the the ethics of the animals, or is it um, you know I. That, that generation are very much into personal fitness and wellness or is it is it a kind of a mixture of the three what, what's their real driver for that passion in younger people we did a big survey very recently with over 3,000 people answering um, and animal welfare was still the biggest driver um, followed by for the first time the environmental issues because it always used to be followed by health and health actually came a close third so Yes, you're right. People aren't that, you know, it's not that simple. With veganism, the beauty of this is, is that the positives are so multifactorial because you're looking at less chronic disease. Um, you're looking at um, living a healthier lifestyle, but you're also looking at directly saving animals and directly protecting our environment. So for students, it was all three, very much so. And what do you most hope will change as a consequence of the the, the cataclysmic crisis that we're in at the moment? I think that where we going back to governmental change, governments do have the power on an international basis to end factory farming. So the slogan of the campaign that we're actually going into uh, coming out of lockdown is end factory farming before it ends us because there are so many issues feeding into how bad factory farming is for the world. Everything that we've mentioned to do with pandemics, but also antibiotic resistance, um, which is (laughs) 
another nightmare for the making. So there are so many reasons to end factory farming. That does need governmental involvement. But on an individual level, we can drive this change by what we demand. Every time we step inside a shop, we have the power to affect change by choosing what we buy and not buying meat and not buying dairy and fish. And that's what, of course, millions of people are choosing to do. So there are glimmers of hope. And I think the consumer campaigning is what really has worked. And you've seen, you know, we've all, we can all taste the evidence of that in the UK, excuse the pun, but, um, (laughs) you know, we've got every major restaurant chain now offering proper vegan menus instead of the token gesture, thank God. And and it it, it is um, an area within Britain and beyond um, that this vegan expansion is happening across the whole of the industrialized world from, from Australia to the United States through it's spreading right across Europe. So we do see some, you know, glimmers of hope here with um, people accepting that veganism is a positive way forward. And how can listeners get involved in that campaign? So if people go to viva.org.uk and if they're interested in the whole COVID-19 put forward slash coronavirus or our campaign against um, factory farming and to close down these wet markets, if you go to forward slash three in four because that number relates the amount of diseases new infectious diseases that are zoonotics jumping from animals to people and we would love people to get involved and that's the end of this edition of the bunker daily thank you so much for joining us Juliet. what's your best vegan cooking tip during lockdown um i think one of the easiest things to do if you're not used to vegan cooking is to look at recipes that are familiar to you and veganize them. So really simple things like if you're used to having spag bol, instead of using beef mince, you just use vegan mince. And that's the only change you have to make. Voila. A, a tin of green lentils does me in <laughs> yeah, that recipe. Exactly. Perfect. Exactly. So you don't have to, you know, spend hours and hours cooking. If I just mention one other one other tip is go to vegan recipe club org.uk because there are hundreds of recipes on there and it's so easy to use it so then an app for your phone as well it's viva's recipe club and it's it's just a joy to use so that's my other tip <laughs> brilliant well we'll be back with another bunker daily tomorrow thank you for listening and see you all soon the bunker daily was presented by naomi smith and produced by andrew harrison the assistant producer was Jacob Archbold, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Bunker Daily.